0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We're continuing in our study of Church 101. We're thinking about and talking through kind of the the basics, our core commitments as a church. What does the Bible say are those things that we need to be committed to, and we're looking at the sixth installment of that this morning uh, on Church 101. So it's again kind of a topical message. We'll move around, but hopefully uh, this is instructive for us. We were, were... press pause on our study through 1 Corinthians to uh, of what the church should not be, <laughs> pretty much, is what the first, at least the first four chapters, there's so much correction there, and we thought it would be good to pivot and spend some time looking at what the church should be, what we have, what our core commitments are, and so we're kind of advancing in that. We're drawing to the end of that. I think we have one or two more messages, and then we'll get back into 1 Corinthians. It's always interesting to me to see how... Um, the evangelical church, particularly in our country, creates and latches onto certain buzzwords and terms. I think that's kind of a, uh, something that happens more often than I would like. These buzzwords typically are put forward by influential Christian leaders, and then they're they're often parroted and repeated by those who look up to and follow those leaders. And uh, and then become so pervasive that uh, we never stop to ask or question whether those terms are biblical, which is never really a good way to go about things. Um, and uh, the problem uh, is we don't let the Word of God set the language and the terms that are used in the church. That's probably why it bothers me the most, and we have to be careful. We let the unredeemed culture kind of steer the ship by setting the terms that we use as Christians. And the issue, of course, is that the language of the church and the language of the Bible is um, decidedly countercultural by nature. It is inherently rubs your fur the wrong way. Christ and the culture are polar opposites. His opposite is light, as light is to darkness, and his opposite as life is to death, and his opposite as heaven is to hell. And so if we're to be faithful to follow Christ, then we must be willing to be, uh, as Christians, to stand alone, to be, as it were, counter-cultural. And that means letting the Word of God define the language of the church and our approach to ministry. And one of the Christian buzzwords that has taken off over the last 20, 30 years is this term, community the term community. In the late 90s, early 2000s, the evangelical church, as a corrective to the rampant individualism that it infiltrated in many congregations, began to emphasize this term of community. You know, we have community groups, and we market our churches as a community of Jesus followers, or we're committed to establishing a Christian community to shine the love of Christ to the lost. You see that Uh, or some variation of that on countless church websites. and uh, The problem is it's not really a great biblical word. The term community has such a broad use that it can be applied to just about any group of people uh, who have something in common. So no matter how superficial, no matter how trivial, there's a farming community, there's biker community, Um, You can use the term as it relates to specific ethnic groups like the Asian community or whatever. So when the church uses and emphasizes the term community all the time uh, to refer to life in the church, it's not that it's sinful. Uh, I don't think it's wrong. It's just not particularly helpful. I think it's not particularly clear. Um, when the church constantly then lurches from kind of trendy cultural term to trendy cultural term, like community, or uh, for a while their missional was kind of a cool word that a lot of pastors wanted to use, and and we apply that to our Christian context, the problem is it muddies up the water and it leads it leads to confusion. We need to let the Scriptures set the language of God's people and His church. We need to let the Word of God rightly divided define the meaning of the words that we use and we need to let that biblical truth and the guide the meaning behind those terms guide our approach to ministry and i'm picking on the word community because it has become ingrained into the language of the church as a substitute for i think a better biblical term which is fellowship fellowship is a term that community often is referring to and the reason that the term Community sprung up in the place of the word fellowship is because the term fellowship itself was evacuated of its meaning to mean nothing more than Christian social activity. Um, The term fellowship had, has, and had been watered down to mean nothing more than Christians sitting around drinking coffee and chit chatting about the weather or sports or um, high school, you know, football or whatever it is. Uh, It's but that's clearly not what the Bible is talking about when it uses the term fellowship, this term in the original language we, we know it as koinonia. The word fellowship is used uh, for the first time in Luke's account of the early church in Acts chapter 2. In verse 42 it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the, the disciples were, and to fellowship. This term koinonia, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So we we get this newly birthed church, Acts chapter 2, and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and this concept, this idea of fellowship. Now, if we read the text, if we read into the text, our own deficient views of, of fellowship um, as basically social activity, then this seems a little out of place. It seems a little um, superficial. But if we define the term fellowship from the Bible and let the original authors, as they're reading and writing to their original audience in its original context, if we let that define the word, then we see that this term is not talking about just informal activity, but purposeful fellowship, purposeful, fellow, or purposeful relationship. The most basic meaning of koinonia, or fellowship, is sharing a common life, a partnership. That is the key concept behind the term. It's not the fact that we're striving toward common goals or common purposes. That's not what binds us together. It is the fact that we share a common spiritual life in Jesus Christ and all of the implications that flow out of that. The very first Christians that Luke tells us about in Acts 2 weren't devoting themselves to social activities. They were devoting themselves to a relationship with other believers, a relationship that consisted of sharing together the very life of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is what we mean by fellowship. When Christ established the church in Acts 2, the church which he had been building and continues to build even today, the church that he promised, as we've said all along in Matthew 16, verse 18, that will continue to advance in the face of every physical and spiritual opponent, when he did that, his followers were devoting themselves to intentional fellowship, not informal activities, but purposeful relationships. And so if we're going to be the kind of church that prevails against all adversaries, we must be a church that is committed to, among other things now, we'll add a sixth item, intentional fellowship. Now we've gone through over the last month and a half, we've identified a number of commitments that we are to have. And just by way of review to set what we've kind of see what ground we've covered we said the church that christ is building must be committed to expository preaching and teaching and we made a case for that from the bible it's that we said that this the uh, church must be committed to a lifestyle of worship not just on sunday mornings or for an hour and a half here on sundays but our whole lives are to be a sacrificial offering of worship to god through jesus christ we are committed to deliberate shepherding, thirdly. We had a whole message on that. And we talked about this transparent discipleship as another core commitment. And last week, we saw that it, we are uh, committed to uh, proactive ministry and service. And now this week, we come to intentional fellowship. Another core commitment. And uh, we can break this down under a number of headings this morning. We first must be committed to intentional fellowship because, and this is our first point, we have a shared life in Christ. We have a shared spiritual life in Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is we'll call it, the vertical dimension to our fellowship. We said just a moment ago the church uses the term fellowship. It's not talking about an activity. It's talking about a relationship. It's talking about a relationship that we have with someone or someone, some people. Um, and for many of us, when we hear the term relationship, we think about uh, we think about our subjective experiences. For example, I have a a good relationship with my parents or. Uh, That means there's a general positive state of affairs that exists between us, or I have a difficult relationship with my sibling or whatever, meaning that there's a negative kind of um, dynamic between uh, brothers and sisters or whatever. This is a typical way we think about relationships. We think about it in terms of the subjective experiential realm whether it's good or bad. But the most basic meaning of a relationship is not our subjective experience, but the objective fact that there is a connection between us. A relationship is the condition or fact of being related. So a husband and a wife, as they get married, they are objectively related to one another. Physically, spiritually, in a one flesh relationship, that's a le- that is a legal relationship in the eyes of the state. It's, it's a covenant relationship in the eyes of God. Children are objectively related to their parents. Uh, you, you're objectively related to maybe a supervisor in the workplace uh, or um, vice versa. Maybe you are the supervisor and you have people underneath you. Whatever your subjective experience, good or bad, close or distant, you are still objectively related to one another. Now, the Puritans differentiated between these two aspects of fellowship, the objective and the subjective, using different terms. They talked about it in terms of union and communion. So union having the more objective direction, communion being the more subjective one. But both, and this is what we want to highlight this morning, both are critical to understanding our commitment to intentional fellowship. You have to understand both. Biblical fellowship is built on the foundation of our union with Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. It can't go anywhere from unless that is true. It's only as we understand our union with God that we can begin to enter fully into the experiential joys of communion with Jesus. God and through Christ and with others. So much of what a church calls fellowship is built upon the shifting sands of people's subjective experiences. That's how, they view, that's how they view ministry. They build ministry around superficial things, a common stage of life, a common ethnicity, a common set of hobbies or music preferences or church styles. That's what draws them together when in reality, biblical fellowship is built upon the bedrock of the objective fact that we are united to Jesus Christ through faith in his, in his work at the cross. When you turned from your unbelief and wickedness and trusted Christ, and I pray that you have for the forgiveness of your sins, at that moment you were, the scripture says, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, baptized into his church, and you became objectively related to Jesus Christ. He not only commuted a sentence of our guilt, he commenced a relationship as being related to his body. In Ephesians 1, Paul uses this phrase over and over and over again. He says we are, or he uses the the prepositional phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He uses it constantly and it's all describing our spiritual union with Jesus, the objective reality of Our union with Christ. It is an objective fact that came about on the basis of faith. And our union with Christ is the key that unlocks all the spiritual blessings that belong to us in Christ, in the heavenly places. We receive that in Christ. It is a spiritual union. You'll see in Ephesians 1, it is a life-giving union. It brings about a new quality to our life. It's comprehensive. It touches every dimension of our existence, body, and soul. And it is permanent, irrevocable. We're to be committed to infe- intentional fellowship because we have a shared life with Jesus Christ, first and foremost, on the basis of faith. Um, If you look uh, back at uh, 1 Corinthians for a minute, in chapter 1, and in verses 8 and 9, Paul, as he uh, just begins to introduce his comments to them, you'll remember as we studied this a few months ago, he says um, that you are united to Christ, he says, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus And then he says this God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus, our Lord. So Paul can say that God will confirm the Corinthian believers to the end blameless. And the reason he can say that is verse 9 because he has called them into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, an objective relationship with Jesus on the basis of faith. If you look over at First John chapter um, 1 and verse 3, he says, What we have seen and heard about Jesus, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, this is the objective statement, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John here, again, sees fellowship primarily in terms of an objective relationship with God the Father through the Son, and he's not stated explicitly, but we know from other portions of Scripture, affected by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, all three members of the Godhead. Uh, In Ephesians 5 and verse 30, uh, Paul says, we are all members of his body. So through faith in Christ, we become members of Christ's spiritual body. Um, when I think about my heart or my hand or my feet, when I think about parts of my body, I don't think about casual association. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think of, when I think about members of my physical body, I think integral part of me. Uh, except for that one time, I was cutting up a lot of onions, and I actually chopped off my, <laughs> the corner of my ring finger, Then it was no longer an integral part of me. But it grew back like a starfish, so I'm good. In the same way, if you're a part of Christ's body of the church, you're not just casually associated with Jesus. You're spiritually part of him. He's not just a part of your life or my life. He is our lives as believers. This is so important to understand. You have a shared life with Christ. Your life and his life, my life and all of our lives are bound together with him forever in eternity if we truly belong to him. This is objective fact, not our experiences with one another. That is the foundation, the foundation upon which fellowship is built. Now, in laying the foundation, talking about the objective reality of our fellowship with God through Christ, it doesn't mean that the experiential aspect doesn't exist. It does. It's very, very much a part of it. But we cannot experience the practical uh, experience or joys of fellowship with God unless we are first related, related to Jesus on the basis of faith. It's only because we have this objective relationship with Christ that the fullness of our experience is realized. Well, how do we do that then? How do we experience the fullness of our fellowship with God? So on a, on a vertical level. I me give you some practical, uh, I guess, exhortation. First, uh, Galatians 5 verse 16 says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So the flesh, which is our unredeemed humanity, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's um, presence in our hearts and lives, they are in direct opposition to one another. The Spirit and the flesh um, fight against one another. If you want to experience the joy of fellowship with God, your heart and mind must be continually under the Spirit's Control. And we do that by putting ourselves uh, and setting our minds on things above, not on things below. So it's uh, Colossians 3, verse 1. You walk by the Spirit by setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Well, what's the primary thing that sets our mind on the things of the Spirit? It's the scripture. Because the Spirit authored this word and this. His, word attends, his Spirit attends his, the reading and the interpretation of his word. You must cultivate, then, a discipline of mind to dwell on God's truth as much as you can. Read it. Meditate on it. Pray over it. Memorize it. Obey it. Our minds are constantly drawn away to different things. And sometimes we have to focus intently on a task at work or a task here or a thing there. And, and we get it. You can't obviously hold on to Scripture you know, at the front and center of everything as you're doing every little thing. But the question becomes, what does your mind drift back to? Where does it go when, when you're not preoccupied you know, with this or that? Our mind needs to drift back to God and His Word the way a needle drifts back to magnetic north. We, do, we, we have communion with Christ by walking first in the Spirit. Secondly, if we want to realize the fullness of our fellowship with God, again, we're talking about it on a vertical level, we must forsake and confess sin. We must forsake and confess sin. Sin steals the joy of fellowship with God. It, it zaps our spiritual vitality. If you look at Psalm 32, um, in verses 1 to 5, David understands this. He says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Unconfessed sin brings guilt. It brings shame. It brings spiritual isolation. It sucks away our spiritual vitality. The solution repent and confess your sin. Some of you here this morning are wasting away spiritually because you have not let go of your sin. You're holding on to it. Turn away from it, confess it. So important. We're committed to intentional fellowship because. We have a shared life with Christ, objectively because of our union with Christ and experientially in our communion with him day by day. We do that by walking in the Spirit and by forsaking and confessing sin, keeping short accounts with God. This vertical aspect of our relationship is the foundation that gives way to the horizontal dimension of our fellowship between our fellow Christians, our believers, which leads us to the second main point. So, we have a shared life with Christ, with God through Christ. Secondly, we're committed to intentional fellowship because we have a shared life with one another. We're committed to in- intentional fellowship because we have a shared life with one another the horizontal fellowship that we are supposed to have in the local church um, presupposes that each individual member has an active and vibrant relationship with God individually. If there's no relationship with Christ, there can be no sharing of a common life together with other believers in Christ. So as we talk about this life in the church... Keep in mind, all of this, all of it presupposes that you are truly trusting Christ by faith and are communing with him by walking on the Spirit and keeping short accounts. Um, We have union, first, with one another. So we we need to understand that as kind of a sub-point. We have union with one another. Look uh, look with me at Romans 12, but we're looking at verses four and five. Paul says there: "For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." So, we need to acknowledge the fact that we have a an objective union with each other in the local church. Jerry Bridges in his book True Fellowship says God does not save groups. He saves individually in repentance and faith to his gospel invitation. But although God saves us as individuals, he immediately incorporates us into the body of Christ. End quote. So when you're born again through repentance and faith, your life is not just is not only objectively bound up together with Christ, like we said earlier. But your life is also objectively bound up together with his people in the church. Those who also have been united to Christ. Every single person is saved, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit having been baptized into one body. That's an objective fact. If you look over at Ephesians 2, Paul uses the analogy of a church as a temple And he describes each individual believer as a brick that is being fitted together in this overarching structure which is growing into the temple of God. That's his church. Um, In verse 21, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This term, fitting together, is an intensive verb form. It emphasizes God's ongoing work of shaping and molding and placing each brick exactly in the place that it needs to be in His church. If you're in Christ this morning, by God's grace, you have been carefully fitted together with His people in the church. And rather than growing apart from other Christians, your life is has been bound together in God's temple in the church. I love watching masons lay brick. I confess, I have watched many YouTube videos of people laying brick. Because it's fascinating. If you ever tried to do it, it's hard. It's hard to do well. And yet you see these individuals, they just pick up a brick and lay it, you know. They have the line that they run to keep it level and uh i mean it's it's a, it's truly a skill it's it's amazing to watch and ancient masons didn't have the benefit of mortar so bricks were often fit together just by the tolerances of the spaces between them so if you weren't good at it cutting and laying the brick eventually whatever you're building would would get out of whack and that's the picture here of course in this day there was no Mortar, ancient Masons use an elaborate process to fit each stone together. One can be assured if Masons are doing that in ancient times, God in his grace is carefully fitting together every individual in his church with equal care, greater, even greater care. All of us, all of us share a common life with Christ and with each other whether our attitudes and actions reflect that doesn't change the objective truth of what we saw in Romans 12, verse 5, that we are members one of another. We belong to one another in his church. To be objectively in fellowship with other believers by faith in Christ, while at the same time isolating Ourselves from the experiential aspects of that fellowship, that contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible, and it is disobedience to God's will. It's not a preference thing. It is a sin thing. If your life is consistently too busy for meaningful, consistent fellowship with God's people in his church, then you are living in disobedience to his word period. Whatever your priorities are, they are not God's priorities. I can guarantee that. Because the scriptures again and again and again make this point that we have a shared life with one another. Objectively, we are members one with another in the church. And because we belong to one another, we are to live that out, In practical concern and care for each other in the local church. This is the communion aspect of our fellowship. This is the thing we always are talking about when we use the term community or we use the term fellowship. But we got to understand all that's underneath it, objectively, between our relationship with God through Christ as well as our objective connection to other believers. Now, Paul has made, as we go back to Romans 12 for a second, Paul has made this case that we are members one of another. That we have union with Christ through God, and therefore we, by implication, have union with one another in his church. He's told us in Ephesians 2 that we are his temple, to use a different word picture, and each part is being fit together to build up his church. But I want you to notice how Paul applies this truth in some very practical ways in the subsequent verses. These are the verses we've been memorizing in Romans 12. He says we're members one with another. So what? So what? Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, or as we said earlier, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. This is the communion aspect of the Bible, what the Bible describes as fellowship in the church. So let me give you some helpful categories. Let me break it down in even more practical terms to think about working out the experiential dimension of our fellowship in the church. will give you, uh, how many do I got here? One, two, three, four, five, six. six. I got six categories to think about working out this communion of fellowship in the church. First, we live this out by caring for one another. Caring for one another. We should be genuinely concerned for one another's spiritual and practical needs. That, that's a natural, um, very plain, uh, practical implication of our commitment. Uh, some of you have suffered from headaches that are far more uh, intense than anything I've ever experienced with migraines and things like that. But you know that a headache affects the whole body, right? When you have a, a splitting headache, it's hard to think, it's hard to focus, it's hard to get up and do things. You, it can stop you in your tracks. Those of you who've had those kinds of headaches, you know. Um, and so uh, that's how we need to view those who hurt in the church, because one part affects the whole That's why he says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We come alongside because we share in that. Just like like a headache affects the whole body, when someone's hurting in the church, that affects us. It should, at least it should move us to care for them. And when they rejoice, we should rejoice with them. There is a restorative power in the body of Christ as we help and care for those who are hurting, and those who have needs, so we care for one another. Secondly, by honoring one another, by honoring one another, we should go a step further. When one part is honored, we should rejoice because that part of the body belongs to the body as well. So when, when there's something to rejoice in and celebrate, we, we, we enter into that joy and celebration with that person. We're not in competition with each other. We're in cooperation with one another in the body of Christ, the local church. So we care for one another. We honor one another. Third, we speak the truth in love to one another. As uh, Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to do this uh, so that the church may be built up. We all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He says we are to speak the truth in love, verse 18. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So those who are sinning or weak must be encouraged. Those who are in rebellion must be admonished. 1 Thessalonians 5 says those who are who need encouragement and help are to be helped. And that often involves speaking God's truth to people out of a genuine love and concern for their soul. Fourth, we pray with and for one another. This is a way our fellowship horizontally works itself out. We pray with others and we pray for other people. Um... We need to have, I think, as we grow in Christ, less me prayers and more we prayers. I think that's a mark of maturing Christianity is that your prayers focus not just on yourself, but more and more on others, their needs, their concerns. Rejoicing with them, praying for them to stand firm. You're, you're not just worried about your own spiritual life. And we, we are to pray for ourselves and we are to plead with God and, tr- and, and have a humble spirit. We, we need God's help just as much as anybody. But the point is that we can also look outside of ourselves to care for others and intercede on their behalf, to go before the throne of grace. And so we pray for one another. And you can't pray for people specifically or clearly if you don't know them. You have to talk to them. You have to spend time with them You have to observe and consider what their needs are. Fifth, by sharing biblical truth. This is a little different than speaking the truth in love because that's a very specific kind of counsel. But I mean just sharing biblical truth. Words, as one writer said, disentangle themselves when passing over lips and through pencil tips. I like that little word um, picture there. As we share biblical truth with other people, we have to organize it and develop it in our own minds. And so it builds us up and it strengthens them. Words disentangle themselves as when passing over lips and through pencil tips. So that's where a note can be the, one of the most helpful ways that you can come alongside and minister to somebody. Drop them a note. Tell them how you're praying for them. Let them know how much you're thankful for this or that. Open up your heart and share something that you learned from God's word that may have been beneficial, that might speak to their situation. Whatever it is, you share biblical truth. Lastly, we need to have openness with one another. Openness with each other. More than just sharing theological truths, is in view here. It's how those truths are working themselves in your life. Good, bad, ugly. This is where um, having a, a, a handful of close relationships in the church becomes an opportunity for you to confess your sins one with another and to entreat God's help through their encouragement and accountability to live in consistency with God's word and his will. And so uh, we open our lives up to each other, and we share what's on our heart, what we're struggling with, as what it is that we're thinking about, and we're willing to hear, again, what they speak, what they share from God's word. These are the things that work themselves out in the context of relationships. Caring for one another, honoring one another, speaking the truth in love, praying with and for one another, sharing biblical truth, openness with one another. That's what we mean when we say intentional fellowship. It has a purpose. Now, I've spent a lot of time arguing for why fellowship is so much more than social activities, and in doing so, you might get the impression that I don't think social activities have any value or that they're sinful or wrong, and that would be a mistake. I don't want you to walk away from this message and say, well, you know, Christians doing things together are bad. That's not what I'm saying. Biblical fellowship doesn't mean no activities. Biblical fellowship can and should include social activities. It can't always be, can't always be super intense all the time. Those things are a grace from God. But we need to understand that biblical fellowship is not just that. We need to put our activities in the proper perspective. Colin Marshall, in his opening chapter of his book, The Trellis and the Vine, he gives us illustration in the book about two trellises in the backyard of his home when he purchased the property years ago. One of those trellises was really elaborate uh, it was obvious that someone had spent a lot of time building it, like actually creating it, and um, and the other was falling apart. The one that was so elaborate, though, had no vine growing in it because no one had nurtured or cared for a vine. It was just a trellis stuck in a pot, but it was pretty. The trellis that was falling apart could hardly be seen because the plant growing through it was so rich and lush and verdant. And the point that he makes, and I think it's a really powerful illustration, is that the trellises themselves don't grow vines. Vines have to be personally cared for by the owner. They have to be watered. They have to be fertilized. They have to be pruned at the proper time. They have to be shaped And just as trellises don't grow vines, fellowship activities and ministry structures in and of themselves don't grow a church. Just like that vine, the church grows and biblical fellowship takes place when God's people wake up to the reality of their shared life with Christ and with one another and then begin to establish those relationships to build up the body by doing all the things we just talked about. So all the activities that a church organizes then are a platform from which relationships can be forged and for biblical fellowship to take place. They are not the fellowship. Does that make sense? We're not. The, the, the activities are a means to an end. Are a means to an end. Intentional fellowship requires strategic effort, on each individual Christian's part. It requires, first, that you commune with God day by day. You walk in the Spirit and keep short accounts with God by confessing sin and repenting. And secondly, it requires that you commune with his saints in his church that is thoughtfully, purposely caring and honoring and praying and sharing and speaking to one another and opening up your life for other believers in the local body. That's biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship, the way it's defined from the scriptures, that doesn't happen by accident. It happens actively. It must be pursued. That's why we say it's, we're committed to intentional fellowship. It's not going to run you over. You have to go out and pursue it. That's why Luke says in Acts 2, they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship, among other things. And everyone was feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That's the picture of biblical fellowship. They had a shared life together with Christ, and that translated into a shared relationship, shared life together with one another. And verse 46 says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That's the picture that we should aim for in the life of the church. A shared life together with Christ that translates into a shared life together with his people in the church. Let's pray. Or may this be increasingly the orientation of our hearts and the practice of our church. As we come to this Lord's Table, we're reminded that this, indeed, is a part of our fellowship. We celebrate and remember the shared life that we have in Jesus Christ. Through your work at the cross and your resurrection from the grave, we have been brought into the life of God through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. The table that we share is your table, and the life that we share is your life. We pray that we would come to that with a sense of awe, a sense of reverence, a sense of humility, and a, rec- and a sense of joy and thankfulness in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio or information about Cascades Bible Church. Visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.